good evening, good evening. It's across the tracks. It's across the tracks. We are back. We are back. And it is Sunday, June the 30th. June the 30th. It is the end of another month. And July is knocking at the door. And that means summer is in full swing. And uh, we are glad to uh, still be here on the job, bringing you Across the Tracks podcast. So. Yeah. Before we start, Wayne, there's a couple of things I'd like to uh, get started with here. One is uh, something, some sad news that happened over this past this week. And that is on Tuesday, uh, one of E-Town High's uh, favorite coaches and individuals passed away. And that is Coach Ray Vinsel. Coach Vinsel died on Tuesday, and he's such an uh, uh, individual that had such a positive influence on the Elizabethtown community that it would be uh, it would be miss me to not to mention the passing of such a, a great individual. Uh, he has been a mentor. He has been a father figure. He has been a, a, a coach and a beloved member of the community. So. I'd like to say, you know, our, our prayers are going up uh, to the Vinsel family and also to the Durbin family because uh, Coach Vinsel's sister is Mrs. Durbin. And I'm sure that they're also, uh, you know, uh, suffering and, and uh, going through the same, the same thing with the passing of Coach Vinsel. The next thing, and it kind of leads into the topic that we're talking about, Today is the 30th anniversary of the release of a Spike Lee joint called Do the Right Thing. Very inspirational, very uh, controversial, very uplifting and uh, sad, but a significant part of America, Americana, that people need to watch. And uh, if you want to see what our topics about tonight, it can play right into the roles of this this iconic movie that uh, introduced us to some of the today's you know well known uh, black artists and actors and so on. So today is the 30th anniversary of the release of a Spike Lee joint called "Do the Right Thing." All right, absolutely classic in its own right, and uh, ditto. <clears throat> excuse me, ditto. On your comments about uh, <clears throat> Coach Vinsel, uh, truly a great man, great coach, uh, beloved by the uh, community within e- within E Town, Hardin County, uh, well known. Um, uh, you played ball for the coach um, uh, during your time at E Town. I, I did not play uh, play for the coach, but uh, I, I, he was PE teacher as well. So it was always cool when he. Uh, uh, came into PE class and we were so excited to, to shoot hoops during PE class. So that was that was one of the things I always looked forward to was playing hoops in PE class. But uh, Tower of a Man, uh, inspiration to all who came to know him. So um, uh, our prayers and uh, uh, thoughts are with the Vinsel family and, as you mentioned, to the Durbin family, as Miss Durbin is uh, is the coach's sister. So uh, ditto on Do the Right Thing. It's one of the greatest movies of all time. I think as Spike's movies go, 
that is one of to me that that's in the top five uh, that that do do the right thing is in the top five. I'm partial to Malcolm X, but do the right thing is is running, in my view, a close second on my list. But indeed, a classic 30 years uh, since that movie debuted. So if you're not doing anything and you want to uh, tap into what's going on around the, the United States today, a lot of the stuff going on in that movie is happening right today. So and again, it plays into our topic for tonight. So, yeah, art, art is itself, you know, our lives. is. Who knew that at the end of that movie that it is reflective of things that's happened today? You know, when Radio Raheem was uh, in the situation that it ended his life, it reminded me so much, so much of Eric Garner. And we talked we talked about that before. And it's it's life entertaining art. You know, right towards the end of that, when Radio Raheem was was choked by that police officer, his last words were, I can't breathe. Yep. Yep. He doesn't say it loud, but he goes, he does, I, can't, I can't breathe. He does not and, loud, absolutely. And, and Eric Garner, what did he say for selling cigarettes? I can't breathe. Yep. Life imitates arts very often in, in Americana sometimes today, small and large communities. Absolutely. Okay. So for tonight, um, again, we want to pick up from where we left off last week. And last week, we were talking about, <clears throat> excuse me, how uh, the black community uh, has suffered uh, from what is going on uh, with the prison industrial complex, criminal justice system. And then we segued off into a lot of different topics, uh, some having to do with uh, reparations. We talked a little bit about um, you know, what we thought of reparations, um, you know, how reparations stacked up against some of the other um, issuances of financial um, um, payouts to certain groups who have suffered just as the black community has. And so tonight we want to pick up on that uh, and continue that conversation uh, with a topic that's apropos for tonight. And it's it's if you look at the country now, you've got a lot of gentrification going on around this country and a lot of major cities. It's happening here in Denver uh, where the five points area, which was the black part of Denver for many, many, many years. Uh, we were there several months ago and did not recognize the area because, you know, people are moving out. People are moving in. And you have to wonder why? I'm at a loss as to why. Uh, do you have any idea, Steve, as to why that might be? I think a lot of it, Wayne, is because people are moving out and people are moving in because of the color of their skin. I mean, when you talk about gentrification, you're talking about, as you mentioned earlier, you know, they're finding a way to move black folks out of those urban areas and make more money when you move white folks in. You know, and there are some white folks that are fleeing uh, the urban areas and moving out to the suburbs. Well, you know, it's impossible to run and hide from the community. You know, you can run, you can run, but you can't hide. True. You know, and and, and our our uh, laws right now, they don't care, which we talked about before, the idea of, of training people. 
They don't want to train people. You know, you stick them in jail and you punish them and you punish them. And they don't want to do anything to help save somebody in the future. You know, it's the idea of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That's what politicians say, because, you know, that's what's going to get them the votes. You know, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Vote for me and I'll set you free. That's that's the thoughts that I see coming from political leaders today. Well, I, I, I echo those sentiments wholeheartedly. Um, and, 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 in, and in line with that, you, you have a lot of um, today. I, I don't know what's going on. I think, you know, yeah, people are invading spaces that were primarily black at one time. And that causes people to develop maybe hatred toward people. Uh, we have gotten away from, you know, talking about you know, being kind to each other, showing love to one another. Um, it seems like today the only person that's talking about, you know, loving their brother is is the preachers that you see, either see on the TV or hear on the radio. Um, and also, if if we if you if you're being if someone is talking about loving their brother, that that goes into, um, you know, you have to teach people what it means to love their brother and why that's important. But it seems, too, that no one's interested in learning about that. Um, do you have any ideas as to who might be interested in learning about loving thy brother, being kind to people? Have any ideas uh, from your perspective? Well, the, the, the biggest thing and the biggest person, the biggest people today that are dealing with teaching people to love thy brother and so on, to be kind to one another, are teachers. You know, teachers are always being have always been thrown under the bus because the education system and so on. And a lot of people don't realize that teachers work really, really hard and they have to, especially public school teachers have to take every student that comes into their classroom and they have to teach every student differently. You know, they got different learning ages and you have to have differential teaching. You have to have uh, special language teachers. You have English language learners and so on. So teachers are the ones that really are the people that are able to help and motivate and to give people that that extra uh, positive influence. But teachers are the ones that are, are interested in learning, and they always have to do extra in order to help their kids out, to help their students out to perform. True, true. And so with, with all of what we've just talked about going on, people uh, invading spaces that were once minority spaces, um, the hate that's going on, teaching people to love their brother, um, a lot of the things that if you look out through the lens of what's going on in our country right now, you still have segregation going on in a lot of ways. People are determined to try to better themselves or better their situation. We have demonstrations still. You know, we thought demonstrations ended in the 60s. We still have demonstrations going on. In a lot of ways, <clears throat> we are still trying to integrate people into systems and into um, society uh, to make them uh, feel productive. People are aggravated. People are humiliated. And on top of that, everybody at some points some point feels that they have some obligation to this nation that we call the U.S. of A. And so 
If anyone listening to the podcast, if any of what we said rings familiar to you, it's because we have been playing off the words to a classic song from the 60s uh, done by the the legendary R&B group, The Temptations. The title of that song was Ball of Confusion. And so tonight, some of the topics we've discussed tonight, particularly um, talking about segregation, determination, demonstration, integration, aggravation, humiliation, obligation to our nation. Tonight, that is going to lead us into the topic for tonight's podcast. And we're going to talk a bit about segregation. We're going to talk a a bit about integration. And lastly, about reparations. And so um, feel free, sit back, chill, And uh, we'd like to hear from you on this particular subject. Uh, Once you have a chance to listen to the podcast, uh, share your comments with us. And so I'll just kick it off. Um, Segregation. Um, You and I, we grew up in in Elizabethtown, Hardin County. And at the time we were growing up, I think we mentioned in one of the very first podcasts, the first um, time that I realized that things were different for me as a, as a kid growing up in E-Town was the fact that we were not allowed to sit down in the balcony at the state theater. We had to go into that side door off the street and go up to the balcony. And we had our own little snack bar up there. I think we had a bathroom up there as well. I don't remember a snack bar up there. Yeah, there, there was, was a little... bathroom. There was a bathroom up there. Was... That bathroom was bad. Yeah, the bathroom was bad. But there was a, there was a little spot up at once you came up the stairs, you could buy popcorn. There was there you could buy. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah I remember yeah. now. Yeah, right. This is, you got to the top of the stairs. At the right yeah. at the top of the stairs, and it was dark going up those stairs. Man. <laughs> But you could buy popcorn there, and then that's where we had to enjoy the movie because we were not allowed to sit in the lower auditorium. And I don't remember being allowed to sit down there. I, I think our, we, we might have been in junior high um, you know, at T.K. Stone before we were actually allowed to go down and sit into the auditorium. But that was my first experience with segregation. I don't remember people utilizing the term Jim Crow at the time growing up, but the fact that we could not go down into that main auditorium, there was a reason for that and why we were restricted as black people to that balcony. So that's my first instance with segregation. How how about yourself? Well, it was the same as you, you know, because, you know, that was our Saturday. You know, we would leave our house and cross the, you would cross the tracks. And since they State theater was on my side of the tracks. We would go down there and we would stay there all day. Right. And, you know, as I think I mentioned earlier in a podcast that my older brother uh, went to Bond, Washington, which was the segregated school, which was probably three miles from where we lived. And so he didn't get the chance to um, go to TK Stone or go to uh, Morningside Elementary. And when he when they did finally integrate the school system, he was uh, uh, kicked out of the school, and my parents had to dig up money to send him to the Catholic school, you know, St. James Elementary School, which was closer, but still, I mean, he wasn't able to go right down the street to um, Morningside Elementary School or T.K. Stone uh, at that time. And so... um, yeah, that's that's my first uh, thoughts of segregation. And I also remember traveling to the um, 
Florida and Louisiana to visit my relatives and uh, my parents uh, could only bring gasoline in case they were running out of gas because many times uh, going through uh, Alabama or, or Mississippi or Louisiana, you couldn't stop and get gasoline uh, from a gas station. So they always brought extra gas and put it in the trunk so that they would find a black neighborhood, find a filling station, and then they would be able to uh, get gas. Yeah, yeah. You know, as I mentioned earlier, um, the the Five Points area here in Denver, uh, it was uh, at the time, um, at the height, you know, in the the 50s, uh, 40s, 50s, early 60s, uh, the Five Points area, uh, it was that haven for a lot of black artists. Uh, they came through Denver, jazz artists, um, actors, actors, whoever. They came through um, Colorado. Now, uh, the Five Points area was that haven. <clears throat> and as I mentioned, we were up there several months ago just walking around, and uh, I was I was shocked that um, the flavor of the neighborhood has changed so much. Uh, due to gentrification. It it is not the five points that uh, probably a lot of the people that grew up in Denver remember. Um, And it's a shadow of what it used to be. There's still a few black businesses around, but for the most part, um, it has lost that flavor that it once had. And that's happening. It's happening in New York. It's happening in Seattle. I was in Seattle. Uh, The the vibrant uh, central district uh, which was the predominantly black neighborhood in Seattle, uh, changed totally. Um, nothing resembles what it used to be. So, um, you know, segregation, um, it, it, I think what segregation did for us as a people, it, um, it inspired us to, if, you know, our view was if you don't want us with you, then we'll find a way to sustain ourselves and be actually good at sustaining ourselves. And so you had a lot of institutions that were born out of segregation that instilled a lot of pride in black people. Um, there were avenues available to people to shop, to do business with. All those things were born out of segregation. HBCUs, uh, a lot of other institutions that, um, you know, are held, hold an historical uh, platform in our community. They were born out of the majority group not wanting us to participate uh, in the experience of America. Right, right. And, and even when the federal government got involved and said that, you know, we can't literally take our education system and have it be separate but unequal. And therefore, they have to uh, make sure that the states are living up to everyone is created equal. Now, there are some byproducts to that now. And I think I've mentioned this before, is that, as you mentioned, you know, in the black community, the idea is that if you don't want us to be a part of the majority, if you don't want to do anything that will help our people get by, then we'll create our own. Now, when we started creating our own ideas and own um, economic ideas and wanting to protect ourselves and so on, the federal government started freaking out about that because they saw power 
in the black community. And they also saw that the way that the black community could survive is that, that they would not be able to use or be used by the majority. And so therefore, the best thing that they could do is try to disenfranchise and or cause confusion within the black community to keep the black community separate. Because we don't want the black community to be strong and together because that's a powerful force in which the federal government at the time did not want to deal with. Because, you know, if you had the, the, the black community as strong, then that was something that was fearful. And you had to keep black people, you have to keep America in fear. And that's what a lot of things are going on today. The more you scare people, the more you try to bring pe- those people that are in fear together. Right, and right. so when the Nation of Islam was created by Elijah Muhammad, that scared the hell out of the federal government. When the Black Panther political party was formed in the late 60s, that scared the hell out of the federal government. Now, you know today that we talk about, some people talk about the right to bear arms. You know, the right to bear arms. You can't take away our, our arms. You can't take away our guns. And when the black community and the Black Panthers says, hey, we're going to arm ourselves, boy, that really sent a shockwave yep. to yep. America. Yep. And then the state of California decided that they're going to ban weapons from the black community. Now, it's amazing that the white community or the community in general that support guns, the NRA, let's say the NRA, they didn't support the Black Panther Party. Nope. They, they weren't there to say that we're going to help you keep your guns. No. And the Black Panther Party was considered a militant group. Yep. And all this group of people did is fed kids after school. Nope. No community did that before. They had educational systems after school. No community did that. They had after school care for those kids in the inner cities of in the inner city of Oakland. No community did that. Now lots of communities do that. That came from the Black Panther Party. But yet they were considered, you know, the biggest threat to the United States because they said, if you shoot at us, we're gonna shoot back. And that's not supposed to happen. Well, it, it, and, it, and, it, and it falls in line with, you know, what Malcolm X always said. Malcolm X says, we, as a whole, we're not violent. We're not violent people. But we do have a right to defend ourselves if you are violent toward us. And I think that's fair. And I think that's all the Black Panthers were saying at the time. Uh, I'm, I'm reading a book about Fred Hampton. And uh, a lot of what you were outlining about, you know, that, that, that there was tons of misinformation put out about the Black Panther Party. But as you read, get into Fred Hampton's life and find out what he was about, it was about making sure that there were outlets available for people within the community that they did not have to depend on the government for certain right. things. And, and the school lunch program, breakfast before school programs, those programs 
were, were, were birthed in the inner city. And as the Panthers grew, those programs started to spread to other cities. And But there was so many misinf- so much misinformation put out there by the U.S. government that the Black Panther Party was a terrorist organization. They were radicals. They were interested in overthrowing the government. So much crap that was put out that, uh, yes, it made people fearful of them. And that's what's still going on today, that uh, somehow um, black people, especially black men, are vilified and made people, people are made to feel afraid of us. And so um, I'm not sure how we change that narrative um, to to get people to realize that, hey, um, what what do you need to be afraid of? We're, we're just out here grinding, going to work every day, going to school, trying to take care of our families just like you are. But uh, there's there's something about, you know, black people that has made people afraid of us. And, and I'm, I'm not sure why that is. Yeah. Yeah, I understand. I understand what you're saying. And, and it should not be that way at all. Not at all. You know, um, when Brown versus Board of Education was passed in 1954, the Supreme Court passed that unanimously. It was nine to zero. And they had Southern uh, judges on the Supreme Court that they had to convince people uh, that this had to be uh, Earl Warren had to convince the, the justices that it has to be nine to zero. It can't be five to four because part of the American society will say, well, we can't go along with the integration of kids because five of the members says that it's okay and the other four says it's not. So therefore, we're going to go with those four. And uh, Earl, Earl Warren had to convince all the justices, even the Southern justices, who were quote unquote, against some of them against the idea back in their home states of integration, that it had to be a a thing to change. It had to be a positive change. It had to be a change across the entire country and and the the two uh, territories that's outside of the United States. It has to it has to happen because to get past the idea of not knowing, not understanding, equal education, and just to get used to the different groups, it had to be done. It's it's kind of like a a laboratory experiment. You know, you bring black kids and white kids together, you know, they're going to be kids, especially at the younger ages. You know, you throw a kickball out there and they're going to kick the ball. You know, they're gonna they're gonna pick the ball up and throw it at somebody, right. and somebody right. else gonna throw it. They're just gonna be kids, right? And so, you know, integrating the kids and giving people the proper education, or at least the possibility of having equal education, is a positive thing. Now, right. I, I'll have a personal take on this a little bit later on how it had integration has had a, a negative effect on. Uh, I feel on. Uh, the United States, and especially teachers. Yeah. So let, let's 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 go there uh, with with two ideas that you know we're we're both familiar with. At the time um, in the '60s, uh, the fight for civil rights. You had Malcolm X on one hand. You had Martin Luther King on the other hand. Malcolm X's view was 
we do not need to integrate with the majority group. We can do for ourselves and we can have our own businesses and we can we can do our own thing and sustain our communities. We don't need all we ask is that we be treated equally. Whereas Dr. King's view was, no, we want to be a part of what's going on over there in the majority group. We want to be a part of that. And so two different views. I think both men had the best interests of the black community uh, at heart. But what I found, and, and you may disagree with this, but when we finally did, we, we did not adopt Malcolm's view. We adopted Dr. King's view and we integrated into the uh, majority society, the majority group's entity. And so on some aspects, I think integration hurt black people. This is my opinion, because the pride and the ingenuity and everything that established all those institutions that were born out of segregation, once we integrated, it appears that we lost some of that and we became uh, we became docile. Uh, we 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 were categorized as, you know, always looking for a handout, um, you know, by various groups. Uh, that we were always the ones on welfare and this or that. And so I think integration crippled the black community to an extent. That's just my opinion. I don't disagree with that. I don't disagree with that. Uh, It it took away motivation. It took away some self-reliance. It took away some um, idea of that I can can do it myself. We can do it as, as we find ways of getting through. Um, there were communities out in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, for example, where they had a vibrant black community. Yeah. They had their own businesses. They had their own, they had their own little town. Uh, they were bankers. They were lawyers. They were uh, teachers. They were preachers. They didn't really need anything. And then what ended up happening is that some bogus uh, uh, event happened and it was an excuse for the community in in Tulsa to to go through and burn down the black community. It was actually known as Black Wall Street, Black Wall Street. Yep. And they went through there and literally burned the entire neighborhood down. Yep. And, and 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 part of that was that they didn't rely upon the idea of integration. You know, when the Great Migration took place and a lot of people left the South and went to uh, Chicago, New York and so on, they also went out to Oklahoma. They also yep. went out west. And so they started their own businesses. They started their own community. They were self-reliant out there. Yep. So once again, I don't disagree with, with what you say is that integration you know, did have a negative effect on some of the black community. However, on the other side, you know, without integration, you know, the the idea of education uh, and being equal, having the same um, possibilities to um, make it uh, increase through integration. You know, uh, when you had Bond Washington and you had one or two Text, science textbooks and you went to E-Town High School and every student in the high school had a 
a, a textbook, a science book, then it was uh, something totally different. So that equal education wasn't wasn't the same. Um, one thing that I one thing that I uh, do want to mention, and I've mentioned it before, is that integration had a negative effect on black educators. You know, with Brown versus Board of Education, 1954, I may have mentioned this before also, there were over 80,000 black educators in this country, black teachers, professors, and so on. And as the only opportunity to get some jobs every now and then was to be in the education because right. you had the HBCUs, you had separate, uh, separate um, schools, and black teachers weren't hired in the white schools. So they had to teach in the segregated schools. And I, I look at Indianapolis example. Um, Christmas Attics High School was created back in the 1920s as the black high school for Indianapolis. And they had literally half the staff of uh, addicts were PhDs. Wow. They were PhDs, okay, teaching high school students. So mm -hmm. you, you know they had a great education in addicts, okay? Uh, but now you, can't, you can hardly get black students to go into education. There are very few black teachers. I'm, I'm on a school board in Indianapolis, and I'm trying to hire more black teachers. I'm, I'm, I've talked to personnel, HR. I've talked to the superintendent and said, we need to get black teachers. We need to get Hispanic teachers. We need to get Asian teachers because that is the community that our township is. Right. You know, right. When, when we first moved to Indianapolis, 90% of the population in our township was white. Today, you know, 35 years after that move, only about 45% of the township that I teach in, that I taught in, is white. You well, know, people moving out, people moving in. Why? <laughs> because of the color of their skin. Yeah, and there are some people that are fleeing to Johnson County fleeing to what's called Center Grove because that's where a lot of the white community feels that they don't want to go to school with these other kids and they're bringing down property values and all that's a bunch of bull crap, wow. you know, and we have to teach all students that come, come to Prairie Township schools and those kids that are now coming in, we have a huge uh, Burmese population right now. Those kids are the top of the classes yeah. because their parents believe in education. Their parents want to make sure that their kids have a better way of life than they did. Right. And that's the same as our parents taught us. Right. You know, we want you to do better than us. Right. We want you to have an education. You know, my, my mom uh, finished her junior year in high school. That was it. She didn't finish high school. My father went to the third grade. That was it. So they made sure that, you know, I was able to go to school to make sure that I did my best, even though I didn't all the time. Right. <laughs> but, you know, the opportunities was that you're going to be better than, than your dad and, and me. So right. Right. you better, you better hit the books. And right. it, it finally caught up with me that, yeah, I, I'm going to hit the books. 
Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, when, 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 when we talk about integrating, you know, black people moving into the majority, uh, once I, I think, and, and not just black people, but once you integrate people of color into the majority system, whatever that is, I think there is an obligation, the country, be it a school, the country itself, whatever. And we talked about this briefly last week. Once once you have an institution that reflects what society looks like, there is an obligation to tell people the truth about how we got to where we did. Do you follow you follow what I'm saying? It's yeah. like um, America has a tough time telling the truth about itself. And so if, if you if if the, you, you allow these people into your systems, but you only tell half the story about why this group of people were important to the history of this nation or why, what did these people contribute? If you only slant the story one way and the piece of the story that you tell about a specific group isn't all the story and they're made to feel as though like we didn't contribute anything to what's going on here, then you have done a disservice to the integration process. That's just my opinion. And so America needs to do a better job of that. I think one of the one of the worst things that we have done as a nation is when we allowed um, people to hyphenate themselves. Do you follow? You follow what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, I understand. I was born in Etown, Kentucky. Okay, Hardin County, Hardin Memorial Hospital, Etown, Kentucky. Therefore, I am an American. Period. I may have African features, but I am not of from Africa. I'm, none of my parents were born in Africa. Therefore, I think. I have the right to say, no, I'm not an African-American. I am an American. And that is what is, to me, is destroying this nation is we've allowed everyone to stick a tag to themselves. Instead of us all being one, uh, what's the slogan on our money? E pluribus unum. Out of many, one. We're supposed to be one. As Barack said, there are no blue states, there are no red states. There is only the United States. And we all make up the fabric of the United States of America. Therefore, this, I'm an Asian American, I'm an African American, I'm a Filipino man. No, we're all Americans. If you were born here, you're an American, period. And, and allowing that identity crisis, to me, has crippled this country. On the other, on the other side of that, Wayne? Yeah. You know, going coming up in the 60s and coming up in the 70s, you know, as I mentioned last week, when we stopped in Anderson, uh, Indiana, from Fort Wayne, and as we walked into the B-dubs and this 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 white man called four grown black men boys, there is a backlash to some of that, you know, because. You know, our parents, my parents are a little bit older than your parents, of course. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, we were tired of being called out of our name. You know, we had to do something that would identify our self-worth as in the black community. You know, James Brown, when he came out with that theme, that song, said loud, I'm black and I'm proud. That really, that really 
um, hit a note for the black community because, you know, we as ourselves in, in the black community, we hated ourselves in some time, in, in some instances. You know, we used to process our hair. You know, why did people process their hair? Because they wanted to pass. And, and to the to the listening audience, when you hear black folks talk about wanting to pass, that basically means if I'm very, very light complected, I could pass for being white, which basically means that life in America is totally different yep. than life for everybody else. You yep. know, we talk about the house Negroes and the field Negroes from back in the uh, 1840s, 50s, 60s, and so on. So this idea of uh, the European way of thinking has prevailed throughout this country. And so there's always going to be this talk about, you know, you're better than me and so on. And so some of what you're saying is true. But on the other hand, we have to look at, you know, like people like Malcolm X and say, hey, black people are strong. Black people can be together. And the idea of hyphenating came out of the idea that we want to have something that is that's going to uplift us. You know, there was no Black History Month prior to the 1960s. You know, that's something that the black community did to say that we need to do things that bring out the positive aspects of the black community. Because the the media, the government, local, state and national are saying that we are this when we're not. So let's bring that out. I think that's when the hyphenating developed. Because growing up, you know, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. You know, we just considered ourselves black people. And then later on, they someone tagged on African-Americans. Like you said, you know, I was born in Fort Knox. Okay, my parents were born in Florida and Louisiana. I can only go back to 1842 to find my relatives. You know, that's as far back as I can go simply because there aren't very many records of slave kids in Kentucky. I know that my great, great, great grandfather came from Kentucky in the 1940, in the 1840s, but I can't go back any further than that. So I know our people came from Africa. Man. I know they did, you know, so yeah, there's, there's a little bit of apprehension, apprehension about what we're talking about there as well. You know, we have to come together as a community. You know, well, and, and gentrification, you know, that's another way of separating this and dividing us. Yeah. And and so to segue on to a to a to a to a something that you said on a piggyback off of that, it seems that the Holocaust galvanizes the Jewish community together. What happened to the Japanese Americans during World War Two that galvanizes them, um, the Native Americans who were here. They still hold on to a lot of those tribal customs that even though uh, they may have been diluted over time, they still cling to those tribal customs. Right. When it comes to us as black people, I, I we, we talk about this all the time as to what is it that is preventing us from coming together as a people and making some significant change in this country? I think we had the opportunity 
when Kaepernick took his stance that I'm going to take a knee to protest police brutality, more black athletes should have stood with Kaepernick and said, you know what, you're right. And we're going to stand with you. And you know what? We're not playing anymore until this issue is reconciled. When Trump called the NFL player son of a bitches, that was an opportunity to say, you know what? You want to call us son of a bitches? I tell you what, we're not playing anymore. And we're not playing anymore until some action is taken to change some things about professional sports that need to be changed. You and I both follow sports. There are some things that need to be changed when it comes to professional sports, since the majority of a couple of these sports are black, are dominated by black athletes. Correct. We had the power at that time to say, you know what? You want to call us names. You want to belittle the fact that this one guy says, look, I'm going to stand up and protest. I'm going to take a knee to protest police brutality. But instead, we cowered. Only a few people stood by Colin Kaepernick. No one said anything when Trump called NFL players son of a bitches. Get him off the field. You know, that was our opportunity to say, you know what? We're going to put it into this and we're going to put it into it. But we're not playing anymore. And so you want us you want to you want to put an economic hurting on America that have black black athletes not participating in sports anymore. But we can't get to that point. And it's like we're afraid to help one another because I, I don't know. I, I don't know what that is. My my daughter is, is in the journalistic field. She's a journalist. And she's reached out to a lot of her contacts within the community. One prominent contact who asked my daughter for her resume. This was several months ago. And nothing has been done with the resume to reach out to the individual that that my daughter was told that the resume was going to get to. And it's like, what are we afraid of? What, why are we so reluctant to help another black person mm-hmm. or stand, stand with each other when we see that, like, you know what? This picture does not look right. And so we need to take action. But we can't get to that. And I, I'm, I'm not sure why the experience of slavery doesn't galvanize us as black people as does the Holocaust for the Jewish community, the internment of, of Japanese Americans, it galvanizes their community. But slavery doesn't seem to do that for us. I, I, I think, I think Wayne, <laughs> I, I think that a lot of what you're talking about is more economics than it is anything else. Because, you know, those athletes who are being paid to play a sport, that's their livelihood. You know, that 19-year-old that just finished his first year of college basketball that is now eligible for the NBA draft and eligible to make 10, 12, 14, 20 million dollars, that has cow- that is what has cowered a lot of these athletes. It's more about economics. You know, some of those athletes are wise enough to invest their money uh, properly to look at the long picture. But a lot of lot of athletes, you know, even though the NFL or NBA or uh, MLB gives them classes on how to 
handle their money, a lot of them don't really know how to handle their money. Mm-hmm. You know, the agents take part of that money. You know, they they help their family out and they they not not blow the money, but they don't use that money to see where they're going to be in the future. Yeah. And if you if you finish your NFL career and you're 30 years old and you've only had three years of college, you know, what's the likelihood that you're going to be able to survive the next 35 years on that salary unless you have somebody that's in your corner that's that's helping you. So a lot of what we have, and I mentioned earlier, is that we don't stick together. And you mentioned this. We don't stick together as a community. Mm-hmm. The person that steps up, instead of celebrating that person, we want to bring that person down. That's how it's always been in the black community. Mm-hmm. That's why I mentioned, you know, the, the field hands and the people, the, the, the people that worked in the house. The house Negroes and the field Negroes. You know, the, the house Negroes, and Malcolm X said it, you know. And, and the house Negroes would say, you know, I'm going to do everything I can to keep my life the way it is. So if the the master gets sick, then I'm going to help the master. You know, those people out there working the fields, you know, I don't care about them because they're not really on the same level as I am with the master. So right. until we can get past that, past putting each other down, past murdering and killing each other over silly stuff, we're always going to be apart. We're yeah. never going to reach that that goal of total unity as a group right, because right. we we we're not teaching our kids we're not uh buying into the idea that uh e pluribus unum you know if we're strong together we'll stay together and we'll make it together we'll we'll survive together that's always been a problem in our black in the black community yeah yeah and, uh, and and that's a good point to to segue to this uh, this last topic on our list tonight, and that is reparations. <laughs> you you talked about people managing money, but do you think reparations would would help the black community in any form or fashion? Only uh, and I, I, I have my opinion. Go ahead, <laughs> go ahead no, man. I'll, I'll let you start this one. Well. I'm going to go to your question, can it help the black community? And and I mentioned this a little bit last week. For me, myself, I think if there's going to be reparations, it has to be in something that helps the community. Not necessarily giving it to individuals, Mm -hmm. but like, you know, taking that money and putting it in a trust in which... Black students can go and help them pay for their their college. A trust in which black entrepreneurs can go and get a loan to start that company. A trust in which educators and lawyers can go and uh, get some of that money to help themselves out to get them through law school. Uh, A trust in which lawyers, doctors 
can go and help pay for the medical school. And then in return, go back to their communities, go back to the black communities and live, stay there and help those communities out. A trust in which black students can go get a teaching certificate, get education and go back and help their community. Because I guarantee you in the 30 years that I taught, I don't know how many students that I helped, but I know within my students, I rarely had a black student that caused a problem in my classroom. Mm. Rare. Now, they were hellions in other teachers' classrooms. Oh, this person, oh, Bobby was such a pain in the ass when I had him. But when Bobby's in my class, and I think because Bobby doesn't want to disappoint Mr. Johnson that Bobby did his homework. Bobby didn't sleep in class. Bobby did everything that I asked of Bobby simply because there was a positive influence in his life. We need more of that. And I I think we need, and I'm always going to push for more black teachers to influence, to help uh, the black community out. Because if you are a positive influence, then people are going to see you as a positive influence. They're not going to say that, well, you know, there's old Steve, you know, that pain in the ass that he was, you know, he's not ever going to be worth a damn, you know? And I, I can, I can see there were some people, there were some teachers that said that about me because I was a pain in the ass to some teachers. I was, but overall, you know, I had a lot of self-confidence that, there was nothing that I could not do that I would not try, Yeah, you know, yeah. and we don't, we don't have that today. And consequently, you know, my parents couldn't send me to college because they couldn't afford it. We were poor, you know? So I thought to myself that if I can't go to college, then I'm going to pay my way through college. And so I went into the Coast Guard, went into the military, got the GI Bill. I became a much better student after being in the military because I didn't want to stay in the military for 20 years. So when I got out, you know, and instead of graduating in four years, I graduated in three and a half years so that I was able to focus on my studies. I I, I went from being a a BC student to being an A student, an AD student in college, simply because I had focus. Yeah. You know, and I, and I don't think it's a bad thing that I think every person in this country should do at least two years in the military. Yeah. White, black, rich, poor, it doesn't yeah. matter. I think it should be mandatory myself. That's my own personal opinion, because yeah. it will give people the opportunity to grow up. Yeah. That's what helped me more than anything is yeah. going in the military and being 18 years old and being responsible for million dollars, millions of dollars worth of equipment and responsible for saving people's lives. That right. Right. that made that helped me grow up a lot. Right. And then the military is, you know, we're talking about, you know, we talked a bit about integration, but the military is probably one of the best social experiments for integration that I can think of. Because you are literally 
um, you know, basic training, whatever you, you know, your, your initial introduction to the military is, you're thrown in there with a bunch of people who they don't look like you, they don't share your background, they may not share your experiences, and you're expected to become a team within, you know, eight to 11 weeks and function as a team and learn to trust each other. And somehow it works. <laughs> you know, what what happens at the other end is and there it, it was it was like that for me. Uh, I was like friends with so many guys that I started out with uh, at Lackland Air Force Base for the six weeks we were there. By the time we got to that sixth week, we knew each other, white, black, from New York, you're from Kentucky, you're from Alabama. I mean, people who had never seen, had never interacted with another black person, you know, it was eye-opening for them and vice versa. Um, so the military does a good job about, I don't know if it's forced integration, if you want to call it that, but you have to learn to depend on people and it doesn't matter what they look like. Um, you're expected to trust that person and uh, and depend on that person. So yeah, you have to because you your your, your lives and your friends and That's your right. company's lives are dependent upon. That's them. right. You know. And so, so yeah. And so, so what are your thoughts about reparations? I, I, and so I, I, on? I don't. I'm not gonna let you off the hook now. No, no, absolutely. <laughs> and, uh, and 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 I I'm on line with some of your thinking. I, I don't think that the government should give this money to an individual or individuals. I think, for one, it's going to be difficult to say, you know, well, let's give, you know, how are you going to trace back and say, well, we're going to give X amount of dollars to this entity who are descendants of it? I mean, that's going to take a long time to do that. But I'm in line with your view that instead of giving that money to an individual, set up some vehicle that will overall benefit the black community. And a trust is a good idea. The next question that comes up is who would be the executor of that trust? Uh, do you find some prominent uh, black businessman or businesswoman to oversee that trust? Uh, don't know. But having some vehicle set up that can benefit the black community overall with education, getting a grasp on technology, bringing businesses to those communities that have been um, neglected for so long, giving people jobs, uh, economic empowerment. I think that is the best way. If reparations are going to come to pass, that is the best way to utilize them. And and that would galvanize our community. And I think um, give us, um, you know, give us, um, I'm not sure what the word is, but I think it, it would energize our communities uh, to uh, seek seek higher, uh, to seek for higher uh, opportunity and, and and to change some of the plights that have been plaguing our communities for so long. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, I, I, individual, no. But some entity that will benefit the black community as a whole, yes. Yeah, what, and one, one thing that I, I didn't mention is the fact that, you know, trade schools, getting a trade, being an electrician, being a plumber, yep. I mean, you can do that as well because – Everyone is not meant to go to college. Absolutely. You True. know, there are I'm I'm on another school board. Imagine that me on two school boards. <laughs> One is the Perry Township School Board and the other is Central Nine Technologies. And there are guys that 
that go to C9, which is a technical school, for two years, and they can become a welder. And within two years, within a year, they found themselves a job. And within two years, they're making $50, $60 an hour as a welder. Wow. Now, imagine if you and, – and welders are, are – we have a shortage of welders. We have a shortage of technical people yep. in the United States. So I think it's – if you create technical schools, take that money, put it in a trust and say, hey, you know, Jimmy, Joe, Bob, you're not the smartest tool in the back. However, you're good with your hands. We're going to send you to a technical school because we feel that you could be that welder that needs to help build these skyscrapers. You're not technical. You don't like school, but you like playing with computers. Let's let you build. Let's let you work in a field that's going to create solar panels, for example. You know, let's get away from. You know, there's no reason why the United States can't do what we did in World War II, and that is to completely change our automotive uh, industry into making planes and ships that would help that helped us win the war. Yeah. We could overnight, if we decided to, every person in America could have an electric car if we wanted to. Every house in America could yeah. have solar panels. Absolutely. Every every house in America can do that if we choose to do so. Right. But the problem is is that we have to take those people that are in the automotive industry and recalculate for them. And that's the biggest thing. The people that are working off the coast of Louisiana, off the coast of California, off the coast of Florida, off the coast of Georgia that are drilling for oil, they don't want to lose their jobs. Nope. We could turn it around. We could shut that down right now and recalculate, redo things, and we could sell the world, sell the world everything that's needed to build high-efficiency, battery-powered cars that can go as far as we want to. Yep. But we choose not to do that because there's a political solution to that. Putting yep. that money in a trust, reparations, put it in a trust and creating these different entities – that will help people with trade schools, help people with education, help doctors, lawyers, uh, apprentice all over the country. We could do that within yep. the black community. And yep. that way, some people say, well, that individual, he's done nothing, but we're giving him money. You know, I think that's the biggest part. You know, when when politicians talk about entitlements, it's the idea that those people are getting something for free and I have to work my ass off to get what I want. Yeah, but again, you know, they 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 only see half the picture, and they only, right. they they only they, they don't realize that it's like okay, you you may not have been the person who um, you know whip somebody or or deprive somebody or this or that, but the institutions that are born out of that, you're still a part of that institution, right? And to an, and to an extent, you're still inflicting uh, pain. Um, and suffering upon people because that institution that was born out of that period of time, it still exists. And yeah. in a lot of ways, it is not favorable 
toward a certain group of people. That's so, why it's called privilege. That's why it's called and, privilege. And, and people don't realize that they're privileged. Right. Because and, it's always been that way. Right. And and nothing is going to change until some of the people that have that mindset, they need to die off. They need to move off the stage. I think I think I don't know if in, in our lifetime you or I are going to see it. But a lot of these folks who are perpetrating this uh, superiority, I'm better than you, they need to die off. They need to move off the life stage and go on to wherever they're going. And a new breed of people need to come on board and embrace the fact that this country is better when everyone gets to participate, when everyone has an equal footing in making the experience that is America, making it what it is. But until we can get past that point, we're always going to have people looking down on other people, thinking that if someone else gets a, a, a sliver of something, somehow it's diminishing you when you pretty much control everything. OK, I don't see how it's diminishing you when you control everything. Uh, one other point I want to make. The the phrase of we want our country back. What country do you want back? Yeah. You don't have a country. The only people who have a right to anything are the Native Americans, and that was taken from them. So the majority of the European people that are here in America, guess what? You're an immigrant. You immigrated here from uh, Poland and Germany and all these other places. You came to America seeking a better life. You were fleeing something that brought you to the shores of New York, sailed through, um, you know, came through Ellis Island and whatnot. You were immigrants. So now that other people are seeking a better life and better opportunities because they're fleeing something, now you want to say, well, we can't do that. We, we can't do that anymore. And that is the hypocrisy of America. Uh, the hypocrisy of America is how America has always treated people who are not European, how America has treated them throughout history. It is documented in the annals of history, and it's going to go down as a serious stain on this country. And so uh, I hope that at some point, uh, I, I'm not sure if this reparation thing is going to pass. Um, I know it's being talked about. It's, it's getting some traction in the Congress. Uh, and I think we've laid out a good plan for what to do with that money if it does come to pass. But we got to make sure that if that that does come to pass, we got to make sure that there are not people going to try to stifle that just because they feel that someone else is getting something that they don't deserve. You know, and so um, I, that's my two cents on it. Um, I think we agree uh, on on the methods, but we got to make sure that once the decision is made, yep, we're going to grant these. We're going to grant this money and this is how we're going to do it. Then we have to make sure that the voices who want to stifle that they need to be silenced and they need to be moved out of the way because you're you're a dinosaur in a lot of extent. No one's taking anything from you. No one is taking a thing from you. You still control pretty much everything in this country. Yeah, I I, I agree with you. But there's there's one thing else. I know we're, we're getting at the top of the hour. We've had a great, great discussion here. There is, this is just my own personal belief. I believe, as we talked about, reparations in some form, 
to help the community out is a positive thing. I don't think it's ever going to happen. I really don't think it's ever going to happen. We can talk. Yeah. We can talk about it for the next 400 years, and it's not going to happen. I, that's just my, my personal belief because there are people that are going to say, as we mentioned, that those yeah. people, I'm going to say those people because now you're pointing fingers, they're getting something that I didn't get, that right. I'm not getting. And therefore, in order for us to be equal, we should have reparations too. You know, I, I, I don't think it's going to happen because if we still look, if we still look at the people that will do that, that would be, it's going to have to be a combination of federal and state government to do right. this. Right. And the people that run the country are old white men. This, they're, they're, they're not going to, I don't think they're going to allow it to happen. Not all white men now, not all old white men, but in certain states, it's not going to happen. And we talked about our old buddy, Mitch, who lied, <laughs> Mitch McConnell. It's never going to get to the Senate as long as he's the Senate majority leader. He's never going to accept anything right. to do with that because his, his constituents are going to say no. Yep. This constituents are going to say no. And yep. once again, go back to that question that people in today's society have chosen to be one or the other. And they don't want to listen to and or try to take the logic of the, or of the other simply because they are different. Yep. There's, there's no way that I'm ever going to listen to that political party because they're that political party. That is the dumbest shit I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> well, it is definitely a ball of confusion. <laughs> it You're is, right about that, brother. It is definitely a ball of confusion that we find ourselves juggling uh, these days. And uh, it, it's a one. I, I, I don't know. There are days uh, that uh, my wife and I both talk about. There are days you just feel like I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be black anymore. I don't have to deal with anything having to do with how someone views me just simply because my skin is this color. Um, but you got to keep trucking. You got to keep moving forward. And you, you got to hope that a better day um, is coming. Um, and, and that's what you got to cling to. So I, I want to close with this, with this, with this, uh, with these words. And, um, you know, I'm sure you probably echo the same thing. Um, you know, I love black people. Uh, we are resilient people. If, if you look at what we have endured over the course of our history here in the United States, we have endured a lot and we have been resilient. I would like to see us take that resilience and turn it into something that improves our community across this country so that when people come to certain cities and whatnot, 
um, you know, there's there's a there's a place of refuge for them where they can go. You go to a lot of cities. There's Chinatown. There's uh, there's 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 Little Havana. And there's um, all the Dominican um, Republic nations in the Dominican and the Caribbean. They have their little section of the city, but we don't have a section in any city per se. And uh, so I, I would like to take that resiliency that we have displayed since our existence here in America, take that and build something positive within our communities that we lend the hand to help each other. And that is, that is the only way I see that we're going to improve our, our, uh, our, you know, standard uh, here in America is, is to reach out and, and help, help each other, uh, to get to the next plane. So that's, uh, my two cents. I agree with you, man. I agree. I think we've had a good, good conversation tonight. You know, we don't want to uh, get off into too heavy a tangent because, you know, you know, we're just a couple of uh, guys that grew up in a small town, you know, and there's not much different than our small town than any other small town in America. However, some of our views and some of the people and uh, so on events in our lives uh, gives us a voice. You know, this podcast thing that we're doing across the tracks is to uh, get our voice out there. You know, there may not be very many people that listen to us, but at least there's a record of our thoughts. There's a record of things that's happened in our lives that we're going to pass on to our kids and to people that um, that's out there uh, in cyber world that they may want to listen to what we say. You know, some people will say, oh, these guys are a bunch of assholes. But, you know, that's okay. But, you know, we're putting out something. We're putting out a product that we have faith in. And I think that it's gotten better each time that we've done this. You know, it's it's hard to believe that we did our first podcast on January the 2nd. (laughs) Wow. And, uh, you know, we're still we're still learning. We're still getting better. And I think, as you mentioned earlier, if there are people out there that that want to add to this to this uh dialogue please do so you know we're equal opportunity brothers we're equal opportunity humans we're equal opportunity americans and so you know um this discussion has been great and i think that you know we may come back to it sometime and i think that we need to uh go ahead and and we, we've mentioned integration. We, we've mentioned segregation. We've mentioned reparations. You know, those were our topics for the night. And it is confusing. It yeah. is a ball of confusion. It is a ball confusion. of confusion. <laughs> and uh, the only thing that we can do is try to straighten it out. You know, yeah. a ball is round. You yeah, know, right. there's there's no beginning. There's no end. So this topic will, will last forever. Just yeah. like that ball. There's no beginning. There's no end. No beginning. No end. So I I would like to add one more thing before we uh, end this session of Across the Tracks, and that is uh, Thursday is the 4th of July. It is Independence Day. And I would like to leave uh, the listening audience with this thought. Uh, July the 4th is Independence Day. America is the uh, 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 land of the free, and it's uh, free because of the brave.
So that's that's all I want to say. It's it's the land of the free, but it's because of the brave. Those men and women who serve, who have served, uh, wearing the uniform of this nation, we are free because they've been brave and they have gone and some have made the ultimate sacrifice. So enjoy the 4th of July. Have a great time with your family and friends. And uh, we will catch you on the next Across the Tracks podcast.